0: When software is performing suboptimally, the programmer can use a variety of tools to diagnose problems and improve the quality of the code. A profiler is a tool for examining where a program is spending time. Every program consists of a set of different functions. These functions call each other. The total amount of time that your program runs is the sum of the time that your program spends in all of its different functions. When you run a program, you can execute a profiler on that program, and the profiler will give you a breakdown of which different functions time is being spent in. If you have function A, B, and C, your profiler might say that your program is spending 30% of time in function A, 20% of its time in function B, and 50% of its time in function C. This is pretty important if you have a program that's running really slow, seemingly, You need to be able to see where it's spending all of its time, because a slow-running program is not really running slow, it's running perfectly fast, it's just spending a lot of time in one particular area of the program in a way that may not be so productive to you as the user. Julia Evans is a software engineer at Stripe, and the creator of a Ruby profiler called Spy. RB Spy can execute on a running Ruby program and report back with a profile. As Julia explains, a profiler turns out to be a non-trivial piece of software to build. To introspect a Ruby program, you need to understand how the Ruby interpreter is translating Ruby code into C structs for execution. This episode is about profilers, but in order to talk about profilers, we also have to talk about Ruby, the Ruby interpreter and the way that executing programs are laid out in memory. It was a really enjoyable and, in some ways, low-level conversation, but none of it is too hard to understand, so I think it was a really good explainer, especially for people who know that programs execute, and in order to execute, those programs are sitting somewhere in your machine while they execute. This episode digests a little bit of that content. How do programs actually execute, especially interpreted programs? Because we know that these interpreted programs are getting executed in some way, but they're not getting all compiled into bytecode or, well, they might get compiled into something that's like bytecode, or they might get compiled into some other intermediate representation, which is what happens in the Ruby interpreter, for example. But it's not just going directly into ones and zeros. And you may not know how that works. We explain it in this episode. I also want to announce that we're looking for writers for Software Engineering Daily. We want to bring in some new voices. We're focused on high-quality content about software that will stand the test of time. Today's topic is a great example. Profilers is not something I've read much about relative to how important they are and how interesting their creation turns out to be. If you want to write, go to write to find out more. We're looking for part-time and full-time software journalists. We're also looking for volunteer contributors who just want to write about software engineering. We want to explain technical concepts. We want to tell the untold stories of the software world. And we'd love to hear from you. So go to com slash write or send me an email, jeff at com. I'd love to hear from you. Julia Evans, you are a software engineer at Stripe, and you're the developer of a Ruby profiler called RB Spy. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much for having me. So we're talking about profilers today, and I want to start by describing what a profiler does. What does it mean to profile a program?
1: Right. So there are actually a, a few different kinds of profilers, right? You have CPU profilers, memory profilers. I'm most just interested in talking about CPU profilers right now. So what it means to do, take a CPU profile of a program is basically you want to know like what functions it's spending its time in. And there are, there's one one way to do this. The main way I'm interested in is what's called a sampling profiler. And so what you do um, is you have your program and then let's say like a thousand times a second or a hundred times a second, you're like, what is the stack of my program right now? Right? Like what functions is it running? And then if you have that, then you can get a really good picture of like where your program is spending its time, right? Maybe it's spending its time like downloading a file from the internet and you're like, oh, I spent like 97% of my time in the download file function. And then you can go there and make your program faster. So that's what profiling is about.
0: And why is that important? How would a developer use that ability to be able to break down where in a program their application is spending a lot of time?
1: Well, I guess the the way I think about it is if your program is slow, like, I think it's basically a waste of time to try to guess why it's slow. Like, I've tried to do that before. Or maybe I'll ask, like, the smartest person, like, hey, like, do you know why this is slow this is what I saw. And like, I think this is a really bad idea, right? Because if your program is slow, it's the best thing to do is to just like, like objectively figure out why it's slow. And so if you know, like 80% of my time is being spent in this function, then that's it. And like, you know
0: where to start, right? Is there a time when I should profile a program? Should I do it regularly as a cleaning operation? Or or is it only when you really sense that something is going wrong with the program.
1: I usually only do it if I realize there's a problem. I don't think that program speed is like inherently that important a lot of the time, right? It's like if your program is fast enough, it's fast enough. And so I think it's only worth making it faster if you really feel like you have a problem.
0: Let's say I want to profile a program that is running on my computer. If I want to profile a program, what information would I like to learn about that program?
1: Which functions it spends most of its time in.
0: And in order to improve a program, I need to know which of those aspects of the program are performing poorly. So in order to introspect where it's spending its time and which of those expenditures of time are performing poorly, how am I going to find that out? How am I asking the program, where are you spending your time?
1: Right. Um, So the tricky thing about this is that every programming language has different profiling tools which is I think maybe the hardest thing about profiling. So like, if you have a Python program, you have to use a Python profiler. And if you use a C, have a C program, you use a C profiler. Java has really, really good profiling tools. And like, I think Java probably has the best profiling tools, Java and C, and other languages, like almost all other languages. I'm probably leaving something out, uh, but almost all other languages have worse profiling tools. And I think like this is the most challenging thing about profiling is that it's different for every language.
0: Mm. And as you said, this profile reports the different areas of time that your program is spending time in. So these reports of self time and total time, explain what the difference between self time and total time is for a profile.
1: Sure. So self time is how much time is being spent in the function. So like, Okay, you have your function, and your function might call other functions. So when time is being spent in the function, there's a part of the time which is being spent just in that function, like maybe doing whatever, like doing operations inside that function. And then there's time which is being spent in other like functions which that function calls. Um, So total time is the total amount of time being spent in the function and every other function it calls. And self time is time that's being spent just in that function. So I think like kind of the ideal thing or like the easiest thing to debug is if you have a function with extremely high self time where all the time is really being spent just in that function, because if it's spending 80% of the time just in that function, you can be like, oh, this function is the problem, right? And either it's being called too much or, like, it's doing something too slowly.
0: Right. So if you have a function and then there are nested functions within that, the time that it spends in the nested functions are going to be attributed to the total time measurement. And the time that it's actually spending within this function itself is self-time. And as you said, it obviously be if you looked at your program and it's spending a ton of time in self-time and you're, you look at this program and you say, this is clearly spending too much time. This is, I'm going to need to improve this program. A high measurement of self-time would mean that you should be improving this function itself as opposed to other functions that it's calling. Now, that is not to say exactly. that, that... That's not to say, though, that if you have a function with high total time, that there's not a problem with this function because you could... Have a function that is calling external functions egregiously, and therefore maybe you need to iron out some of the external calls that this function is making. So, with this report of self time and total time, what would you do to evaluate what improvements to make to a program?
1: So, I think that's where you like this. I think this really depends on like your knowledge of your own program, if that makes sense. So, for example, like for my profiler, actually. RBSly, it'll frequently tell me like it's spending all of its time in like in this one like Linux system call, which we're not going to get into right now what it is. Um, but it's, it'll tell me, oh, you're spending all your time in that function. But like I know that that function is really core to my program, and I know that I'm calling it the right amount of times, if that makes sense. So even if I'm spending 50% of my time in that function, I know that there's not much I can do about it unless I add caching, which is maybe something I don't want to do right now. So I feel like you really like just need to lean on like your understanding of your own code and what's appropriate and what's not.
0: You point out that there's a difference between profiling and benchmarking. So a benchmark is a test that I can use to measure how fast my code is. So I could use a benchmark to test my code and then profile it at the same time to get a sample and then use that as, so I'm using profile and benchmarking together could you clarify that difference between profiling and benchmarking? And explain how you use those two strategies together.
1: Definitely. So I think of benchmarking kind of like science, right? Like if somebody tells you your program is slow maybe, like, it's kind of hard to get from that to, like, a concrete statement of a problem with your program, right? Um, So I think the ideal thing, like, if you're trying to make your program faster, is, like, you discover a problem where it's slow, right? And then you figure out a way to, like, consistently reproduce that and say, like, okay, when I run my program in this way, like, maybe with this input or maybe, like, I call these specific functions, then it's slower than I think it should be, right? And so, like, that, like, thing where like you run your program in like one specific way is called a benchmark right um, so maybe like you run your program on some specific input and it takes like 25 seconds to run and you're like well that's too slow and then once you have that like measurement where you're like it takes 25 seconds and i think it's important to realize that there's often a lot of uncertainty in benchmarks like typically if i run a benchmark it might take like 50 25 seconds one time and 23 seconds another time and like you can end up with like 10 or 20% of difference just depending on like what's going on on your computer at the time, right? And it's important to be aware of that. But once you have this benchmark where you're like, okay, this thing takes 25 seconds, um, then you can start to say like, okay, where's that 25 seconds being spent, right? Like 10 seconds being spent talking to the network, what's going on? So you benchmark and then you profile and you figure out like why it's slow and then you make changes to try to improve it and then you run the benchmark again after. Right. And I think that the, the like, step of running the benchmarking again after is really important because I think it's very easy to profile and then like, try to make something better, but then it might not actually make a difference in practice, right, to, to, with your real program. Um, so you need to go back to the benchmark to make sure that you actually made a difference.
0: And we're talking here about benchmarking locally, so you're probably going to do a benchmark on your local machine, but you also talk about the importance of monitoring production performance and profiling in production. We'll eventually get into discussing how you designed a profile, but just a profiler, but talking a little bit more about strategies for people who are using profilers how is the act of monitoring production performance profiling in production how does that fit into the workflow of somebody who's trying to improve the performance of code
1: right so we were talking about benchmarking and it's kind of hard to benchmark web applications right because in practice you have a lot of users with a lot of inputs um like like who are making a lot of requests to your web web application And I think it can be really tricky to like isolate what exactly is going on that's making your program slow. And so I think benchmarking is a lot easier when you have something like a command line program, right, or a desktop program, which you can like really reproduce easily locally what's happening. But with something that's like a web application that's running on a server somewhere, it's often much better to monitor, like, so one thing you can monitor is you can say, like, okay, how long does every HTTP request to my web application take, right? And then you can send that to, like, your monitoring service that certainly we have, <laughs> that I have at work, but hopefully you also have. Um And then it'll say, like, okay, the median request time was, like, maybe 100 milliseconds, right? But then maybe, like, the P95, like, the 95th percentile request time was, like, Three seconds, right? And then you'd be like, "Oh no, my P95 request times are three seconds. That's no good. I can't have requests taking three seconds all the time. I need to make that faster." And then when you make your performance improvements, you can go back to your monitoring and like your statistics about like what's actually happening in production and make sure that that's actually improved. Um, and like, it's really my favorite thing to look at a graph and see like this like line of like P99 request time drop um, when you make an improvement. It's like so rewarding.
0: If I want to profile a program, I could get that program to emit information periodically, and then I could just use that information to get a picture of what the program is doing. This would be kind of like putting in logging statements and then just reading the logging statements and aggregating them. What's wrong with that approach of profiling?
1: That's a great. So I think... There's nothing, like, I mean I don't think that there's anything wrong with any approach that works for you in some sense, right? Like, like, if you put a log statement that's like, I started making this network request, and then you put another log statement after, which says, like, oh, I stopped. And you can see that there's, like, two seconds between the start and the stop. Then you know that the thing took two seconds and that that's too long, and that's fine. There are systems that help you do this even better. Um, so there are these, like, distributed tracing, like, request tracing systems, like Zipkin or um, LightStep or... There are a bunch of others that will make it even easier for you to like gather this kind of data of like this like this block of code took this amount of time, and yeah, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, and that like that can be an extremely useful way of debugging. I do think that like the challenge with that is having to edit the code right to add new statements, like to to add new things that you're wondering, especially if you're putting in print statements in production. Like I have put in print statements in production to debug things, and um, it works. <laughs> I have gotten some good results with that, but it takes a long time, right? Like, you, you need to add the statements, you need to get a code review, you need to deploy it, like, and then maybe you put the wrong ones, and that wasn't really the problem. So you need to take them out and add different ones. And I think it's kind of a, it can be unpleasant to have to resort to that. And it's easier if you can have something which you put in your program, um, like maybe a tracing system or like a profiler, which where you don't have to change the program, uh, which lets you hope potentially get the
0: same information. I guess what I should have said is there are trade-offs to doing that, Uh, to looking at profiling as something where you are putting the code inside of your program and your program now has profiler code within it. The approach that you took for designing your profiler was to move the profiling program to a separate process that would introspect the state of the running program why is that an advantageous approach maybe what are some advantages to looking at the program from the outside in
1: so i think the main advantage is really about usability and like the ability to get started really easily. Like if you have a program which is slow right now and it's like using all your CPU and you're like, what's going on? It's time consuming to have to say like, okay, I'm gonna go now like include a new gem, like the Stack gem, which is a great Ruby profiling gem. So you need to like include a new profiling library, then you need to start profiling, then you need to gather the data, then you need to analyze the data. And I think if you've never done that before, it can be a lot of steps. And what I see is a lot of the times, like people just won't profile their programs because they're like, oh, this is too many steps. I don't have time for this. It's like maybe not that big of a performance issue. That's not worth solving. And so people will end up just not fixing performance issues because like there are too many steps involved uh, to profiling their program. So I wanted to make something which you could just use like immediately right away and start getting information about what was happening with your program.
0: To take a step back, why did you decide to build a profiler for Ruby in the first place? So I'm kind of
1: obsessed with,
0: like, debugging and profiling tools, I think.
1: Like, I learned about five years ago, I learned about sTrace, trace which is this tool that you can use to see what system calls your program is using. And I was like, wow, like, I can, like, see every file my program is opening. I can know what my programs are doing. I didn't know that I had access to all this information, and I think I developed this like aggressive sense of entitlement to information about what my programs are doing. So I kind of noticed that like when I had a Ruby program and it was slow, I couldn't just find out why, and I felt like kind of grumpy about that. I was like, I should be able to know why, right? Like I have a right to know why my program <laughs> is slow. It's my computer. <laughs> it's my program. I'm like root, right? Like. I should be able to know. Why can't I know? And so I wanted to write, write something to fix that problem.
0: And when you look at this design problem from a high level, you want to figure out what is going on in that program. Tell me about some of the high level design decisions that you were going to have to make in designing a profiler.
1: Yeah. Well, so I can talk about maybe how this is possible and how I got started building this, I think. So the main thing I needed to do, I wanted to do was I wanted it to be a separate program, right? Like, I had, like, you have a Ruby program that's running, and I wanted to be able to start a different program that tells me what it's doing. But then, like, how do you do that, right? So the way I got started with this was this guy I know who works at Shopify called Scott Francis, um, and he had this script that used GDB, which is a a C debugger, and it would tell him what his Ruby programs were doing. Because the Ruby interpreter is a C program, right? And GDB is a C program debugger, Um, so you can use a C debugger to figure out what the Ruby interpreter is doing by, like, looking at its internals. So, uh, basically, I found out that, that, like, he had this blog post explaining how to do it with GDB, and I was like, oh, cool, this is possible. And that's the approach I started with.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's worth pointing out here, Ruby is an interpreted language. If I understand correctly, you have a C program running that is interpreting your Ruby code on the fly, and turning it into in-memory structures that the C program itself can interface with. Is that an accurate description? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. So describe in a little more detail, how does the Ruby interpreter, which again is a C program, how does the C program, the Ruby interpreter, interact with the Ruby code that is executing?
1: Right. So I think from a profiling perspective, I think the most useful thing to understand is that you have two stacks inside of the Ruby interpreter. So you have the C stack, right? Which is the the stack of C functions that, that the Ruby interpreter is currently running. Um, and if you use like C profilers on the Ruby interpreter, that's what you'll see. It'll be like, oh, you'll you'll be like, what is Ruby doing? And it's like, it's running Ruby code. Like it'll be like in like, the VM execute function or whatever. You're like, that's not that useful, right? Like of course it's running Ruby code. So there's that stack. And then there's the Ruby stack, which is in a different place in the Ruby interpreter's memory, which has like one Ruby stack frame, which is just like a C data structure inside the Ruby interpreter for every like function
0: on your Ruby call stack. And this is the information that you wanted to get at. You wanted to get the specific information for what was going on in your program, which is in C code or C structures that your Ruby interpreter had broken Ruby code down into. Right.
1: Yeah. And like, this is an interesting thing because it, it kind of feels like it might be impossible. like Or unsafe. Or unsafe. Certainly unsafe. <laughs> right. Like, like it feels like un- impossible and unsafe. And I think, and the Ruby interpreter doesn't, make it that easy for you to get this information like it doesn't provide like a public API for you to just like reach into its memory and figure out what it's doing and so it might seem like it's impossible to do this and i think like people have traditionally thought of like dynamic language profiling as kind of a hard problem right I'm um, like, it's easy to profile static languages and it's hard to profile dynamic languages. But it turns out that it's actually possible to do this.
0: But well, why is that? Why is that an assumption that people make that static languages are easier to introspect than dynamic languages?
1: I guess because like it seems like you have to have cooperation from the interpreter. And I think a lot of interpreters aren't built with a view towards making them easy to profile I think that's why. Yeah, because, like, the interpreter kind of has to tell you in some way what it's doing, right? And if the interpreter isn't designed to make it easy to find out what it's doing, then how are you going to find out?
0: Well, through your strategy, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) through a lot of hacks. (laughs) Through a lot of hacks. And you talk about this in this presentation that I'll put in in the show notes, but you've got a Ruby program that's running and you decide to profile it. So that means you have to find this program in memory and find what it is doing. How do you do that? Yeah. So so I have this code for the Ruby interpreter on my laptop,
1: right? Like I did like git clone, github.com slash Ruby slash Ruby. And so what that means is that like, I know in principle, everything about how the Ruby interpreter works. And I know everything about how the Ruby interpreter works in principle for every Ruby version, right? Like, so if I have like a Ruby 2.2 program running on my laptop, I can see like all of its code and I can see in particular, like, so you have like, we talked about how you have the Ruby stack in memory, right? And so you have these stack frames and for Ruby, the stack is like this like contiguous region of memory. I want to say like, I'm making this up, but like something like maybe 500 bytes per stack frame, right? And so if you can find the location of the stack, which you can relatively easily. So an important thing to note is that it is possible to read memory out of a process. Like, you can read arbitrary memory from another process on Linux and on Mac, um, as long as you're root, which is, I think, surprising. Like, I didn't know that you could do this before I started this project, <laughs> but you can. So as long as you can find out where in the process memory uh, the stack is, you can read the stack out of the process memory, right? And then you have some bytes, which represent the current Ruby stack. And so then the only thing you have to do now, like quote-unquote only, is figure out what all of those bytes mean and how they correspond to actual Ruby functions. And so the way you do that, so we have like these bytes, which, which re- represent a stack frame entry. And those bytes correspond to a C struct, right? Uh, which is in the Ruby interpreter. But we, like, we know the definition of that C struct because it's in the Ruby source code. So it's called, what is it? Like Ruby control frame T is like the type of one of these structs on the stack. So basically what you can do is you can be like, well, I know... And, like, C, like, if you have the source code for a C struct, it always gets represented in memory the same way. Like, that's how C compilers work. It's important that this is true because otherwise dynamic linking wouldn't work, which we can maybe go back to later. But anyway, so C structs always, like, are represented in memory in the same way. Um, so if we have the source code, we can just say, like, okay, like, I know how to find the fourth field of the struct. And I know, like, what it's pointing to because I have its source code.
0: Okay, let me see if I've got this correct. So the Ruby Interpreter is a C program. It's running and it's looking at your Ruby code and turning that into C structs. The Ruby Interpreter has two stacks. One stack is the execution of the Ruby Interpreter itself. So that is like a stack of just C code that's looking at your Ruby code. And then it has another stack that is the representation of your Ruby code as it's executing, although it's been turned into C structs so that the C program can perform actions on those C structs that represent your program. And as you said, on Linux, you can read any process's memory, which is important because this is what you're going to do. You're looking at this Ruby interpreter's memory and you're looking specifically at the stack That is the Ruby interpreter side of things, your Ruby code executing, you know, as time goes on in C code in these C structs. And do I have it right so far? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so you pointed out, like, this is really important that in Linux you can read any processes memory because otherwise you wouldn't be able to do any of this that we just mentioned. Although I wonder, so if... I'm looking at this memory as my, and this is an in-memory section where my program is executing. Isn't this just like changing all the time? Cause programs like change pretty fast, you know, cause they're executing. Yeah, so this is a great point.
1: I think I still haven't completely resolved this. There are basically two ways to approach the fact that programs are changing all the time. Um, one thing you can do is when you profile a program, you can stop it and be like, okay, stop going to figure out what you're doing, and then I'm going to start you again. This is the way, there's a profiler that works very similarly to how my profiler works with Python. It's called Pyflame. Um, it's really great. You sh- if you're interested in Python profilers, you should definitely check it out. And that's what it does. It'll like stop your Python program, figure out what it's doing, and then start it again. My Ruby profiler currently does not do this. It basically just like gets into a race and is like, okay, I bet I can figure out what your stack is faster than you like, can change it. And basically, the bet it's making is that Ruby is not that fast, and that it's faster. And this seems to work out most of the time. I think I'm going to add an option to stop the program because I think it doesn't totally work out all the time. Uh, but but in general, like I think Ruby and Python programs don't change their stack that often compared to like how fast you can
0: run a profiler that's written in like a much faster language. Well, we should also point out the application that we're talking about here is a profiler, so you don't need to. Be 100% accurate. You're just trying to get enough of a sample to understand where your program is spending time, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really important point. Like, if you sometimes get it it a little bit wrong or if you, like, drop a few samples, you're trying to get just, like, a statistical idea of what your program is doing, so you don't need to be perfect, um, which is very important because
0: it's not perfect. (laughs) So my program has a thread in memory that is executing right now, and my C interpreter has translated that code into C structs, and we can introspect it for the reasons that you just mentioned. So what can we do with that information? Now that we've got these C structs, that represent the threads of our Ruby code, what can we do with that information?
1: Right, so basically what we end up doing is we end up, we, we actually need to follow a lot of pointers. So the struct that you get represents like one stack frame and then there are pointers from that stack frame which eventually get you to like the current function name and line number, um, which are like somewhere else in the program's memory. And, but the details of that aren't, aren't super interesting. So once you followed all of this and collected all the information, end up with a stack trace, right? Which has like all of the functions that are currently running. And what I do with that is generate basically really good visualizations that help you figure out what your program is doing. Um, The main visualization that my profiler generates is a flame graph, which is this visualization. Is this answering your question also?
0: It is. I mean, just to point something out, what was really educational about looking at this profiler that you built I you know I'm not a particular expert in profiling programs I don't have a strong affinity for debugging such as you do but it made me think more deeply I actually don't re- I didn't know what does it mean that a, or inter- how does an interpreter work before you know I started thinking about this and then as I watched your presentation and read some of your material like oh I understood okay this is how a program actually executes it's sitting in memory And it's actually a stack trace in memory. Like, I think of a stack trace. My experience with stack traces is you hit a bug... And then your program emits a stack trace and it's like the postmortem on what went wrong. But now what I realize is a stack trace is something that exists in memory because your program is executing and it needs to keep that entire stack trace in memory as it's executing.
1: That's right. Yeah. And it's a really important point about like program execution and how it works because like, yeah, like you said, it's a real thing. And every time you call a function, you add a new like stack frame onto your stack and then when you return, that stack frame like leaves the stack and then you go back to the previous stack frame. Okay, this is sort of a tangent, but I think it's cool. Like if you think about recursive functions and like why recursive functions work like so for example like if you have a tree and you're running like a recursive function to traverse a tree like i think the reason like like if you write a non-recursive version of that function then you need to basically like have a stack where you like keep track of where you are and like the reason recursive functions work is that you can use like basically your program stack as a data structure to track your progress through the program right so it's like not like magic It's actually just like you have a data structure that you're using, but your data structure is your program stack.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so to return to profilers, you've got these in-memory C data structures. You've got stack traces sitting in memory. You've got a stack trace sitting in memory that is your program. As it's executing, it's changing all the time because your program is executing, but the data structure that describes the state of your program at any given time is an in-memory C data structure Unfortunately, it's not really in a, a, a format that's easy to read. So you want to look at this in-memory C data structure, and what do you need to do with it to actually extract useful information?
1: Oh, right. Um. So well, the main thing that you need to be able to do is you need to be able to like, take a C struct definition and, like, figure out what the bytes, like, kind of, like, interpret the bytes according to that C struct definition, right? And I think this is an interesting thing, because it's, like, the easiest programming language to do this in, in some sense, is, like, C or C++, right? I don't know C or C++, so I didn't use either of those languages. It's also easy to do this in Rust, um, which is what I did use, but it's, like, pretty hard to do this kind of thing in Ruby, right? Which is why my profiler is not written in Ruby, because, like... Extracting memory from a program and like interpreting it as like a specific C data structure, and then like figuring out what pointer that's pointing to, and then like extracting more memory from a program and doing all of that very quickly is like an extremely like you could probably technically do this in Ruby, but it would be extremely difficult, and it's like not the kind of thing Ruby is well suited for.
0: Why was Rust a better fit for that?
1: Basically, because Rust has really good support for reading C data structures and for like representing them. So th- there's this program for called for Rust called bindgen, um, where you can take any C header file and Create basically like Rust bindings, which it basically just like makes those C data structures into like Rust data structures, which will be represented in the same way. So I could just say like, hey, read this thing. Like I could make bindgen automatically generate bindings for like every struct that I was interested in in Ruby, and I could do it. I needed to, it to work with thirty different Ruby versions, so I like ran bindgen on like Ruby's internals for thirty different Ruby versions, and then saved like thirty Rust files for every single version, <laughs> because of course Ruby changes constantly, right? And I was dealing with Like unstable internal ruby data structures and then once i had all of that i could just say like okay i need like the ruby like rb control frame t struct and i need it for ruby 2.3 and like i know what it is and then just like interpret these bytes as if they were from that data structure and it would all just work like really easily and transparently and it like wasn't a struggle it was just actually pretty simple which is i think surprising
0: and none of this is very performance intensive to just understand what's going on in the program, right? Like this is not causing a performance hit to the system itself while you're doing the profiling.
1: No, it uses a little bit of CPU. I mean, it uses more CPU depending on basically how deep your stack is, right? Like if you have like a stack, which is like a thousand things, it takes like actually a non-trivial amount of time to read all the memory out of your target program. But if your program doesn't have a very deep stack, it's not that big of a deal. So I guess what, what did I see? Like if you have a lot of things in your stack, like maybe a hundred or something, then I could easily sample like a hundred times a second. And then if there are not too many things in your stack, then it's easy to sample like a thousand times a second, which is definitely often enough for most Ruby programs.
0: And I think We've done a pretty good job of breaking down what your profiler consists of. I think we've talked about the tool chain in, in some detail. So you said, I think GDB, which is a C debugger, you use GDB in order to get the dump of the Ruby interpreter at any given time. Was that correct?
1: No, actually, this is a, this is an interesting point. So I use GDB to like learn how to do it. So like GDB is able to do this, and I kind of like just like figured out what GDB does. And then I didn't use GDB after that. Oh, okay. So I, I just like, used GDB as a learning tool. I got it. And actually, I don't use like, GDB, uses a system call called Ptrace. And I don't use the Ptrace system call, I use the Process VM ReadV system call. But they do similar things. But Ptrace will stop your program, and Process VM ReadV will not um, by itself. Okay. MPTrace is much more complicated.
0: And you mentioned that you used a library called BindGen within Rust to turn the C data structures into Rust data structures. Are there any other tools that you used in, in building your profiler that are worth pointing out? I don't think so. Okay.
1: No, those are the main ones.
0: Okay, and the profiler generates flame graphs. Explain what a flame graph is.
1: Okay, it's hard to do with my voice, but I'll try. (laughs) I think it's, yeah, it's hard to do without looking at one. Basically, it's a visualization invented by Brendan Gregg, uh, who's this, like, profiler wizard. And it's a way to visualize easily where your program is spending its time. So basically, what you'll end up seeing is, like, you'll have, like, some, like, really, like, large, wide areas on your flame graph. And, like, the large areas are where your program is spending its time. I think it's my favorite way to like visualize profiling information. Like we were talking about this like self time total time Mm -hmm. representation from before, but that like doesn't let you see the whole stack. And I think it can be hard to figure out what's going on. And I found a flame graph to be a more useful tool than just like the self time and total time representation. And the nice thing is that you can use flame graphs with profiling tools from lots of different programming languages. Like it's just like a Perl script, which takes a really simple input format and then outputs an SVG. So it's easy to incorporate in like any of your profiling workflows.
0: Yeah, I think of it like a a histogram that tells you the different amounts of time that your program is spending in nested calls within that program so that you you can really break down... Like you said, the self time versus the total time, except you get a finer granularity of what the, that total time consists of.
1: Yeah, it's just like a much richer representation. Something really interesting thing happened when I used flame graphs in RBSPY, which is that one person commented in, on my like testimonials page um, that I have in GitHub, and they were like, oh, I don't know, like I'd never heard of flame graphs before, and I didn't know you could use them. Um, but because RBSPY gener- generates them by default, um, I learned about them. And, like, other Ruby, Ruby profilers also support flame graphs, but I think they just didn't realize that it was an option. And so I think there's something really powerful about, like, generating a, like, rich or powerful visualization by default without, have like, making people go through extra extra steps to do it.
0: That's a good point. I mean, I think of this as a design decision in your, quote, product I mean, you could have designed your profiler to not generate visualizations, but it it you just built in visualizations by default, which is, I think, a great design decision.
1: Yeah. So the Perl script I use, like normally, what people say is they're like, oh, well, you can clone this Git repository and then you can put it in your path and you can make it work, right? Which of course you can do. But I checked the license and I realized that I could actually just like take the Perl script and compile it into my binary so that it just like comes with RV Spy, and you don't need to like get an extra git repository or like add an integration. It's just in the binary and
0: just works. Another great developer ergonomic decision. So working with profilers, are there instances where my profiler can lie to me or give me some kind of misleading information?
1: Can your profiler lie to you? Well, okay. So one really thing important thing to know about CPU profilers is there are are kind of two ways to measure your program's time. Um, you can measure like how much time it's spending on the CPU and you can measure how much time it's spending in total. And so this, this is like a different notion of total than like the self time versus total time, right? So for example, if your program is waiting for never requests, it's not using the CPU at all, right? Um, but it is still waiting for something. So RB spy actually right now only supports total time and it doesn't support just like figuring out how much CPU time your program is, program is using which is, like, something I'm working on. But I think it's really important to understand this distinction because otherwise you can end up being misled.
0: Would you have done anything different if you were building the profiler from scratch today? I can't think of anything
1: yet. Like, I built it pretty recently, so I think maybe I haven't learned that much.
0: I don't know if I've learned enough yet. What are you working on now within the scope of of RB Spy? Are you still are you still adding features to it or improving performance in any way? Adding features
1: to it extremely slowly because I built it on sabbatical, so I took three months off work to work on it, and now I'm back at work. So uh, where I'm not working on profilers, so it's much harder to find the time. But one thing I want to add, I have some like prototype code to do, and I just need to like get it working, get it merged. Is figure out when the program is doing garbage collection, so you can, like you're spending like twelve percent of your time in GC. Because I know that that can be an issue in a lot of review programs.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, have you worked on optimizing code that is spending too much time in GC? Do you have? I mean, this is kind of an adjunct to the discussion of profilers. I've heard discussions of profilers in the Java world where they're oftentimes they are talking about this very issue. How do you make your program? more efficient in terms of garbage collection.
1: Yeah, I haven't worked on that a lot. I know Aaron Patterson has worked on it a lot and he's actually I think working on making the Ruby GC faster.
0: Okay. I feel like we touched on this a little bit, but do you have any insights for why or how dynamic languages compare to statically typed languages in this realm of performance and, and introspection?
1: Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. Because if you look at Java's profiling tools, you have these profilers like YourKit, which is this commercial profiler for Java, which is like ex- outrageously powerful, right? Like you can attach to a Java program and you can find out like anything about what it's doing. Like you can see what it's doing in GC, you can see like where it's spending its time, you can start like tracing every function call, you can do like kind of anything, right? And if you look at C profilers, you see kind of the same thing where you have like perf, which is this extremely powerful C profiler that's part of the Linux kernel. And you have like a lot more profiling and debugging tools. And for dynamic languages, you kind of don't have this. I hear people say a lot like, oh, well, it's because like people don't care about performance, right? Like I think the joke people make is like, if you cared about performance, you wouldn't be using Ruby, right? I guess it's true to some extent, but of course people do care about performance just a little bit, right? At least because if your program, like if your HTTP requests are taking 30 seconds, of course you still need to know why,
0: right? or they didn't care about programming performance when they were writing their mvp and then the program took off and they're like well, okay now we have a lot of users and performance actually matters it's not like let's port the entire program to java to solve our performance issues
1: yeah like often that's not realistic and often it doesn't make sense right like it's often enough just to make your Ruby program a little bit faster so i'm not really sure why there's like such a difference in how much investment there is i feel like maybe one reason for it i'm really speculating here is that like to write a profiler? I think you need to maybe think more about like systems concerns. Like maybe you need to know C, right? You need to understand a little bit about how like the Ruby interpreter is implemented. Well, I mean, of course, like C programmers are more likely to know C than Ruby programmers, right? <laughs> because they're C programmers. So it's like if you're working in one of these like faster languages, maybe you're like more likely to have the skills that you need to write a profiler than if you're working in a dynamic language. Me, yeah, I'm not sure.
0: All right. Well, not a problem. I mean, I know you're not, you know, you haven't spent your time delving into the differences between static and dynamic languages. So that's certainly an opportunity for another show.
1: Yeah. I do think that it's like a cultural question rather than a technical question, though. Like, the question is, like, why are people, like, not spending their time and money on developing these profilers and not, like, why is this not possible?
0: Right, right. So it's not a reason, like, well, dynamic languages, you know, you don't know the type until the execution and therefore it's harder to introspect the profiling characteristics of a program that's running in that language. No, that's that's not why this doesn't exist. It's probably because people are writing Java high frequency trading systems and machine learning training algorithms and these are really high throughput, you know, big data, MapReduce, and low latency, latency sensitive operations. And so it's really important to profile these things. Whereas in at least the reputation is Ruby is like for Ruby on Rails applications. And it's like Airbnb is making a request to schedule a room. And it's like, that's not a performance sensitive issue.
1: Right. Though, of course, it is a performance sensitive issue. Is. Because like <laughs> web latency is like very important, right? And if, if your program is like, if your website is slow, then you lose money. Like, like of course, it actually matters. And there are businesses that are like New Relic, etc. That like do sell this kind of thing, right? But I think the tools are just a lot less powerful. I feel like there's maybe a question of, like, maybe what people's expectations are. Like, I think maybe in Java, people have higher expectations about, like, what they expect, like, what they think you should be able to get out of a profiler than in Ruby. Like, I don't know how many Ruby programmers are also Java programmers and have, like, had experience, like, optimizing Java programs.
0: Yeah, and also, isn't, like, when you get this performance sensitivity, you just start using JRuby? And so you can use Java profilers, perhaps? That's possible. I don't have any experience with J-Ruby.
1: Okay. That's a super interesting question. Okay. Well, Julia, it's been really great talking to you. I've enjoyed this conversation a lot. Thank you so much for having me. This has been the best. Okay. Awesome. Wow.